is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest is Dr. David Martin, who is a chief scientist and the director of performance at Aperion Life, a startup in Menlo Park, California, that uses leading-edge human physiology and performance science to help executives achieve improved performance while preventing injury and increasing long-term health span. From 2014 to 2018, he was working in the NBA as the director of performance research and development for the Philadelphia 76ers. He helped build a technology-rich facility for the team that led to a lot of innovative thoughts on basketball not only from the athletic performance standpoint, but for entertainment and business ventures as well. Prior to his time in Philadelphia, he spent 20 years at the Australian Institute of Sport. His body of work during his time at AIS was extremely vast, working with all types of sports and Olympic-level athletes. If you're interested in some of the work that he's done, you can look him up on researchgate.net. There you'll find over 200 research projects that he was part of. As a senior sports scientist at AIS, he led the initiative for the development of the Combat Sports Center, which was developed to help the Olympic combat sports prepare for the 2020 Games in Tokyo. The project came to fruition through an IOC Solidarity Grant, which connected David and his group to none other than Olympic judo champion and Japanese national team coach, Kosei Inoue. Today, we will hear a very interesting story of how Kosei Inoue felt Japan was losing its warrior ways, which led to a connection with David and his team at AIS. His experiences working with high-level Olympic and professional athletes from a range of different sports makes him one of the most sought-after experts in the field of sports science and human performance. So without further ado, welcome to episode number one of the second season of JudoCast. Uh, Joining Dr. David Martin and myself is a return guest, my good friend Aton Gelber, who always has some amazing insight. I hope all of you enjoy this thought-provoking conversation with one of the most interesting people in the world of sports science and human development. Please welcome to JudoCast, Dr. David Martin. Welcome, everybody, to Season 2 of JudoCast. I wanted to thank all of you for all of your support. Season 1 was an absolute blast. I am super excited to get started with Season 2 as we have some really special guests lined up, and I hope that everyone will enjoy it. So today we have a special guest in Dr. David Martin, and uh, this is a man that I met through my good friend Aton Gelber, who's also going to join our conversation today. Aton, thank you so much for setting this up, and David, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule, and on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you both for being here, and, and welcome to JudoCast. No, it's great. It's going to be a lot of fun and haven't talked about combat sports specifically for, um, well, probably about the last five years with a real heavy emphasis. But um, as I was driving down here, um, just thinking about all the things we did in the combat sports, especially with judo, um, a, lot of, a lot of great memories coming, coming back. So it'll be fun to talk about. So let's, uh, let's back up mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, when did you get involved in sports science is this something is this like a childhood dream or something that you fell into or how how did you get involved in this world yeah, it's a bit of a funny story. So I was a competitive skier. I grew up in Bend, Oregon, so not that that far, just one state north. And um, 
was a competitive skier through high school. I'd done pretty well, and uh, I got a chance to get a, a scholarship in a small school outside of Boise, Idaho, uh, at, at College of Idaho. And I was uh, ski racing there, taking classes, and I wasn't quite sure where it was going to go. I always enjoyed the sciences. I got a chance to go study in um, Australia, and it was an exchange program for a semester. And I was on a little um, a little island out on the Great Barrier Reef, and uh, I was studying sea turtles and ketodonts, these little butterfly fish, and the ecology and ecosystems. And I thought I thought I, a marine biologist would be great. And then I got back to Idaho and found out that biologists study. I think I got thrown onto an assignment where I was looking at um, parasites in bat poo, and uh, it just wasn't <laughs> nearly as exciting. I was like, I'm not, I'm questioning this lifetime choice. And at the time, I took a, I took a class in exercise physiology. And I was really interested. I was a, a downhill skier, but also a cross-country skier, and I was really interested in you know, optimal ways to train. What is your body capable of? Um, how could you train in ways in a week to try to get the most out of what your body could do? And I was just, I was really fascinated and interested in that. The lecturer that I had was very good. So then I, I went to graduate school and got a, a master's degree in exercise physiology that led to a research assistantship at the United, United States Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. So that was the first time I saw the boxing program. I saw the judo athletes come in there, the wrestlers come in there. Um, after that, I got a chance to uh, do my my doctoral studies at University of Wyoming. I really focused there more on endurance sport. Uh, that led to an opportunity to go to the Australian Institute of Sport. And so you can just feel this exercise physiology, exercise science theme just growing and growing and growing. You meet more interesting people. You do more interesting projects. And next thing you know, you're in Australia. I was recently married, and me and my wife were going to stay for two years and then Sydney got the Olympic Games bid, and I couldn't leave because there were so many exciting projects going on. And I, I ended up staying there for, for 21 years. And it was, it was right at the end of that stay, I moved into kind of innovation projects. And one of the projects that we did was right smack dab in the middle of the, of the combat sports. So that's kind of what led me into sports science and what led me into uh, the, these combat sports, Olympic combat sports. Okay, so tell me about the... Um the Australian Sport Institute. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of our mm -hmm. listeners probably are not aware of what's going on down there. And I, I did a little bit of research, and I think that that institute was put together after possibly the failure of the '76 Olympic Games and and yeah. the lack of success that Australia had. So yeah. you spent 20 years, you said, in uh, Australia yeah. at the Sport Institute. Can you? Kind of tell us a little bit about what you were doing during those times. Yeah, I, I had a I had an advisor at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, and I always thought if I could get my PhD, there might be something that would open up with the U.S. Olympic Committee, and um, I, I was thinking that would be a really good career path. Um, maybe mix an academic position with it with some kind of consultancy or work with the Olympic Training Center. And the guy that was advising me, um, JT Kearney, uh, I told him I had an opportunity to take a job at the Australian Institute of Sport, and he said, take it. He said, take it. It's got um, very strong government funding. It's a small nation, you know, less than 30 million people, uh, very organized, very well-funded, very structured, very ambitious. And uh, they had a group of over 60 scientists working together in the sports sciences, a group of over 60. It was like a little, a little NASA community, you know, it was right really interesting and so um he said you should go and and when i went over there i loved it because it was 
It was very e- eclectic. When they had some money, there was money for research and grants, but there was also funding for, for salary lines, which was great. And the idea was that the Australian Institute of Sport, um, it did, it was born out of defeat. Um, so in Montreal Olympics, the Summer Olympics, the, the famous story is that the Prime Minister of Australia goes over to have a breakfast with the gold medalists leading into the last three days of the Olympic Games. And there were no gold medalists. So he had he had basically breakfast on his own <laughs> and right. came home and said, this is really disappointing because Australia really prides itself as being a sporty nation and to have no you know, medalists whatsoever. They're like, we need to do something. So the way the Institute was really designed was there was a kind of some global reconnaissance. What's Russia doing? What's Germany doing? Uh, what's the U.S. doing? What What are other countries doing in Olympic sport? And um, the Institute of Sport is modeled uh, partly off of, or primarily off of this kind of East German sporting system where you would be able to take young, talented individuals such as yourself and you would uh, give them a scholarship and they would then study in school, but all of their costs would be covered, all their coaching costs, all their travel costs. And so if they're on the national team or if they're on an emerging national team, they would live in Canberra at this Institute of Sport and uh, they would have all these great minds combined with all this great coaching, combined with all these great facilities, and their programs would be supported to allow them to internationally compete against the best athletes in the world. It's a really simple model, um, but when you see it in action, it's it's really quite exciting. So. I, I actually had this conversation with Aton um, a few weeks back and I was, I was wondering maybe Aton can fill us in a little bit. We talked about like, if there, is there an equivalent of this kind of institute somewhere else in the world? And we were talking about the possibility of some other places that are doing big things for judo. So I can tell you mm. exactly what you just said. When I grew up in Israel, we had a Romanian guy, which you know, he's the father of Radu. Okay. Remember Radu from Jimmy Pedro's club? Right. His father built the same type of school program in Wingate Institute to take young, talented kids from middle school age to high school. And they lived in the institute and they got training with, and they have sports scientists, physical therapists, full support. So the people that grew up from them is judokas like Udi Wax, Yoel Razvozov. Right. Some of those guys, until today, it still runs in different sports and it's based on the Soviet kind of idea of talented identification and development. I think what we lacked is the sports science that David has or those kind of uh, resources and funding that Australian came from a defeat to probably being the leaders in the world as far as like what we see as the golden era of the AIS, you know, definitely. Yeah. So was- the, the Wingate Institute is that, um, I, I don't know much about that. I know that a lot of judo players go to the Wingate Institute. Is that a, is that a sport? Yeah, it's Institute? a sports university, okay. but at the same time, all is, Israel is a very small country, so a lot of the national teams train there. Right. What would be like a competitor of the Sport Institute in Australia? There were, well, since the AIS, there's, there was a lot of copycats. Um, and the AIS, I think, was unique because it was kind of like a, like a Soviet-style 
uh, sports school or sport institute or an East German sports school, which which tends to people cringe a bit and they're like, oh, this doesn't feel right. You know, like there's a, a little kid, he's eight years old, he's plucked from his mom and dad, he's got, you know, this unbelievable, right. you know, physique <laughs> and he's he moves like a cat and this will be the next judo gold medalist. And so you lose your name, you get a number and you come into the academy. Um, so it, at the AIS, it was, it's all very voluntary. You know, you, you don't have to go if you don't want to go. It's, it's more seen as a, an opportunity. It was kind of like, um, you know, Soviet style, but with um, Western choice. And so the idea was, um, you're not just there for sport, you're there for your education. It's going to be safe. There's going to be no drugs, you know, so it's, um, it, it had like more humanity built into it. And so I think the 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 place the reason the AIS was so unique was because it had so much structure, but it also had um, things that made you feel good about a young kid going there to become very good at their craft. That they were right. also going to get an education. They're going to see the world. They could leave at any time. And I'm sure I'm sure there are parts of it that people will look back and say it was a little bit brutal. They they would hire coaches from all over the world. So for the gymnastics program, they had Chinese coaches coming in. Um, they had Bulgarian coaches. They had German coaches. Um, I worked uh, a lot with cycling. The first coach I worked with was Heiko Salzwedel, you know, and he was a, an East German track cycling coach. And I thought I knew what hard was, and he had a whole different level of what hard was. Hard, hard and commitment to him was a, was a whole nother level. Right. Um, but it was all mixed up in this beautiful kind of Australian culture. It was a, it was a really nice blend. So your question, like who who was a competitor before that? I mean, I'd been at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, and and it was good. It's just not really super well funded. You've been a U.S. athlete, a U.S. national team athlete. You know, the money doesn't run real deep. You try to get private sponsorship for a lot of stuff. This is government sponsorship. Yeah. This is the Australian Sports Commission is funding this program, so you can rely on it a lot more, and it's a lot deeper and more consistent. Yeah, before I ever even researched it or knew anything about it. I, you know, aton has been sending me studies for, for years. You know, he's developing these programs for me when I was training mm -hmm. and I'm always reading up on these super boring, dry, usually reading the abstract, I guess, <laughs> to uh, find out what really the result was. But uh, I remember seeing the Australian Sport Institute as a place where a lot of these studies were taking yeah. place. And I just don't, I don't have the memory or obviously it's not my field of expertise, but I don't think there's as much research going on at the USOC in Colorado Springs. I, I could be wrong, but... No, in most of the research when I was there, I was there in 88 and 89, and a lot of the research is partnered with the university. And so it has to have a slant. The, the way you get money in the US for research is um, through the National Institute of Health. So you have to do exercise in cancer, exercise in diabetes, or exercise in obesity, or exercise in aging, which funny enough, Aton and I are very interested in, right? Right now, yeah. but it's not necessarily like there's you know fifty thousand dollars available for uh, someone to do uh, research in throwing techniques and injury susceptibility in elite judo athletes. Like who's going to fund that? Where do you right. where do you get the money to you know three resistance training programs uh, throughout a weight making strategy in elite judoka? Like the, you know who's going to fund that? You know so and at the AIS they would fund it. Um, they would right. fund those kind of themes. So be, I, I want to get back to your time in Australia, but since you, you just mentioned it, um, can you fill us in? We, we talked a little bit on a previous episode with Aton, mm. and um, it seems like now your role has switched. Although you're still trying to look after people's health and wellness, 
you're looking at it from a different aspect with Appearian Life. So what exactly do do you and Aton do at Appearian Life? So we don't do much, to be honest. <laughs> we, 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 we look for a really interesting podcast to participate in. No, we, we, um, it's, no, it's actually, in all honesty, it's, um, it's an interesting idea. There's a, a very successful venture capitalist down here in the Bay Area, um, Jeff Yang. He's done very well for himself. He's uh, trained in you know Princeton, Stanford, very well connected. And um, he works with the U.S. Um, Olympic Committee, and he has helped them raise money for a tech fund um, to try to support Olympians um, on how sport technology can interface with high-performance sport themes. And he was looking at how high-performing athletes get supported. And it's like Formula One now. You have this little team. You have a support team. You have a a, a dietitian and you'll have a psychologist and you'll have your, you know, athletic trainer, your physical therapist, you'll have your, con- your strength conditioning specialist. And there'll be like a, a little team and they have depth in, in their speciality and they work together um, to try to give you um, what you need when you need it in ways that work for you. And that's kind of a high performance support model. And so he wanted that. He goes, why can't the people that can afford it, I can afford it. I've got friends that can afford it. Why can't we get that? I'm, I'm turning 60. What, what should I be doing? How strong should I be? What, what should I be doing for my joints? How do I take care of my brain? What do I do for my gut health? Everybody says, make sure you maintain your balance so you don't trip and fall and break a bone. But how do you maintain your balance? And how do you organize your week? And if things aren't working for you, how do you, do you, you know, do some type of course correction? And so he came up with this idea, let's bring a high performance support model usually reserved for elite sport and let's make it available uh, for for individuals who are very ambitious, very time poor, um, very motivated and want to stay healthy. These people have really good lives going and they want to stay healthy. They want to be able to go skiing with their kids. They want to be able to go surfing. They've got homes in Hawaii. They've got you know, a helicopter trip that can go up to Canada and find the best powder in the world, but their body's not working. It's not as much fun. Right. And so that's how he developed this concept of a on life. Now, the way I got into it and and Aton, we come from elite sport. So it was perfect for us. They're like, hey, you don't have to deal with the politics of elite sport and you can still think like you thought in elite sport, but just shift it to high performing themes through decades of life. And that's that's what kind of brought us into the whole um, mix. On a on a real basic level, I, I was having this conversation with my wife about the kind of care that I would get, like when I sprained an ankle doing judo, or when I, you know, hurt my shoulder and I had to get some rehab for my shoulder, versus you know, regular Joe that you know gets injured at work and goes to th- the therapy, and it's it's really really horrible care that the yeah. average person gets from medical staff. Not to say the medical staff aren't good. It's just that they're not getting the kind of attention that an athlete gets. And I remember yeah. when I sprained my ankle and Aton would give me these programs, Aton's like, all right, you got to do this, that, and the other thing. And you got to do this every day. It starts right away. You know, I have a friend that gets hurt and they're like, oh, my doctor said just to, you know, wait a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wait a few weeks. I don't, I don't know if that's the, the yeah. way to, I'm yeah. no expert, yeah. but that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> Now you're spot on and Aton can tell you, you know, what it's like working with some of these individuals, but, um, usually for a normal person, 
um, medical care is about just the 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 pain and the injury feeling like it's subsided to a point where you can walk and go back to work. Right. But as a judo athlete, you don't want your ankle to just allow you to walk and be pain free. You need to be able to you know bounce off it, jump off it, spring, right. absorb impact. You you need a fully functional, robust ankle. And so if Aton's going to work with you, it's about let's get on this now. Let's make sure you got full range of motion, full strength, full proprioception. Reception. Like we need this ankle back to as good as it's ever been, which is a very different mindset and goal. And the other thing too would be to be holistic in care to go, your ankle's out, but we can still condition your body. And hey, your nutrition might need to change. And hey, you might be anxious about this, but there's a sleep specialist that can work with you. And hey, we should probably think about your psychology. And hey, let's also make sure that we do some skill acquisition maintenance work while we're doing this. And so it can, it can build up into a very comprehensive program where you come out of it way better than, than you would have if you just waited for someone to say, just stay off your ankle and let me know when the swelling's down, take right. a Tylenol. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Aton, um, you're, you worked at Stanford for a long time working with you know college level elite athletes, dealt with a lot of injuries, knees, ankles, everything you can probably imagine. How would you compare what you're doing now with Aperian Life in working with, you know, for lack of a better term, a regular person? as opposed to working with an elite athlete at Stanford University. Yes. So the area of goal setting or training someone for a specific competition, you have a very specific dates and targets here. You train someone for life or you make sure that tr you try to optimize them in the long term. I'm talking long term, not to the next Olympics, but till they're 80 or 90. Or maybe we can even... Uh, extend their health span which is different than than uh, longevity yeah right so it's 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 where we mm -hmm. at the beginning we struggle a little bit and again with the athletes we will see them every day they'll come in every day we have face contact now you're dealing with mm -hmm. someone that some of them travel 200 days of, out of the year wow so how do you try to manage their health remotely as well what kind of technology you can bring into the game that can help you with that so trying to be a little bit more creative and learn along the way as well. For us, it's a new, new field, a new area, and, uh, and try to come with the sustainable solutions. So it's a, it's a different game. People, people do like, you, you can tell, I think as human beings, I think we love having a, a, a little unit of expertise around us. I mean, if you do get into a hospital and you've got your orthopedic surgeon, you've got your head nurse, you've got a vascular you know, specialist, and you've got the dietitian, you know what it feels like when you have a group, a team of people that are like experts and they're all kind of on the same page. And it's kind of like, we're your community. We've got you. We're, we're backing you. This is going to work. And but belief effects are very powerful and positive psychology is very powerful. And when you start believing that you've got great people around you and you're on the right track and you're not doubting yourself and it might hurt, but you, you know that that's part of the recovery, um, it starts to feel really good. And that's very different than guests waiting in a waiting room forever, a really right. rushed doctor comes in or physician assistant, you can just tell they're stressed. They want to get out of there. They're like, they look at your chart. They got the wrong one. They find yours. They say two, three things and you're out of there. And you just think, I don't even know if they know what they're doing. Right. So th these people want to have groups around them that know what they're doing. So this concierge service that you guys are providing, I say regular Joe, but you guys are, I, I would say it's somewhere probably in the middle between an elite athlete and a regular Joe. Cause you have somebody that's obviously mm. motivated 
Otherwise, they wouldn't be, you know, with you guys at this, at this, you know, startup trying to figure out how to find the fountain of youth, for lack of a better term. But it sounds like they have that motivation, but they're time poor, as you said, which a lot of us are. You know, yeah, that, that's why yeah. this is of interest. This is why I keep telling Aton with where I'm at. Like, I was an elite athlete for a long time, but now I'm an, uh, an aging athlete with kids. And, and I want to be able to throw a ball with my kids and roll around and do judo with my kids for as long mm. as possible. So... What you guys are trying to figure out and the services that you guys are doing, I, I'm sure that there's some kind of long-term thing, but the things that you guys are going to learn through this experience is going to somehow start to trickle into regular yeah. society, I think would be a hope. Yeah, that's that's the goal. And um, my, you know, Aton and I are philosophically quite aligned. Um, it's great helping people that, that can afford it and they'll pay you to, you know, spend time um, on, on them. But the real hope is that we can iron out these kind of translation methodology. There's so many good ideas out there. There's so many great, wonderful, brilliant individuals that have such great ideas on how to keep your bones healthy, your joints healthy, your brain healthy. The amazing research. But to package that up and translate it into your week, how does that look like for you? Right. It's really hard. And that translation piece seems to be lacking. Um, and so it's like water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. There's, there's, there's morsels of, you just get on the, just Google anything and there's a thousand tips on what to do, but how do you blend it into what you need? You got kids, you got a job, you got other things. So you start saying, how much time do I have to invest? Maybe three hours, maybe four hours. So what Aton and I talk a lot about is what are you going to do with those four hours? What's the best way to slice up those four hours? And a lot of the stuff Aton and I are playing around with right now is why just do a cardio workout? Why not do a cardio workout? workout that gives you some balance stimulus. And why not do a cardio workout with a balance stimulus that also helps your bones? And why not do that in a way that de-risk joint inflammation and also helps your brain? Like, you know, how do you, right. how do you package as much of the stuff together as possible? That's super interesting to me, especially at the time in my life. I, like I said, I'm just trying to keep my body healthy, but so I want to talk a little bit about so before you, you came to appearing, mm -hmm. you spent four or five years with the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. And from the outside, of course, you know, people would probably assume, oh, there's just lots of money there. Money's probably no obstacle. But um, I, I think you spent a lot of time employing technology. And, and I would like to hear a little bit about how you guys were utilizing technology for the 76ers, yeah. some of the things that were successful. And, and, you know, what is the real aim or the goal of some of the technology that you're using? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. So I'd been around basketball. I played basketball in high school very, very poorly. That's the, that's the ski pursuit. I was a much better skier than a basketball player. Um, when I got around the NBA, it was really quite new and novel to me. Um, but what I recognized was um, when you get to a sport um, like the NBA and the, any of the North American professional sports, um, it's a it's a blend of, of, of business and entertainment and sport. So there's a business side to it. They're making money. These, these owners that buy the teams, they make money. That's, that's partly of course, sure. why they do it. Um, there's the entertainment side, which is it, you can play to win a game or you can play to win a game and have some stuff for the highlight reels, you know, like bring right. your, bring your <laughs> fan base up. And the NBA is 
way into that. And then, um, and then there's sport. It's competition. It is a sporting competition. So what I would look for when I would look for technology to interface with the sport was how do we pick technology that can help from a business perspective, like an investment perspective. If we're going to partner with technology, why not partner in technology in a way where some of the owners could invest in that company? And then if the company starts to like an, an emerging technological company versus a real mature one. So if it's a, a hot ticket item and it could grow, why not get in on the ground level, get a little bit of investment money in there. Now you've got the, the business side. Um, the other thing is I would look at um, like infographics and things that I thought would um, embellish the game. So at all-star competition, now they have this three-point shooting competition where they go around the three-point line and all the hot shots in the NBA, they shoot off. There's some technology called um, RSPCT, Real Shot Percentage Technology. It's a little Intel depth camera and it can pick up the ball and where it came from, Israeli missile tracking technology. <laughs> it, it is, it's a little Israeli startup company. So right. I'm only half laughing and um, they can track the ball, the full arc of the ball. Um, they're even looking at how the ball spins and they can tell when the ball goes through the hoop, how close to dead center was it? And if it misses, how far off was it? And so you get this, um, this error distance and they can show that live while the television is sh showing these people shooting. So it adds a, a little bit more depth to it. So then at the same time, now you've got entertainment, you also got business. Then the third one is what kind of information would we want if we were working with the athletes and we wanted them to perform well? And some of the real easy technology to go to there is um, tracking technology. There's a company called um, Connexon. It's out of Germany um, and it uh, uses uh, RFID tracking and it um, is pretty high resolution within about five to 10 centimeters location. You can tell where each person on the court is, is moving. And so what you can do in practices is you can evaluate whether the movement pa patterns that you see in practice simulate the movement patterns you see in a game. And so it helps you tune um, this concept of, you know, training specificity or sports specificity. They do the same in, in judo. We would do a lot of the research at the combat center was along the lines of how many throws, what kind of throws, what, where was your heart rate when you started initiating throws, what kind of ground game, when was the ground game? And so are you actually practicing, um, judo play, um, competition in ways that simulate competition? And it, one of the first things we saw in Australia is not at all. You know, when you get two people that know yeah. each other and they kind of know each other's moves, they kind of play together and it's fun. They work up a sweat, but it tends to be low intensity, very continuous in nature. The randori is like a, is like a jog. And then competition is like a freaking hand grenade going off, you know, so yeah. they're totally different. And Eitan so and I were just talking about okay, this, yeah. uh, about the way we practice judo and the free play of all of it and, and the importance of structured learning or yeah. you know, some of the motor development that Eitan can yeah. maybe touch on that. That as judo practitioners and even coaches, to be mm. honest, sometimes we get a little lazy and we say, all right, let's, let's do randori, let's set the clock. And we're essentially doing free play. And, and a lot of old coaches say, well, that's how you get good. You've got to learn to feel and you just practice right. for hours and hours and hours versus the importance of some sort of structured, you know, learning that then on. Or even if you think about Chuck, you know, those situational drills, you want to put someone's heart rate up in a contextual way. So you make those situational drills we used to do where you start with Osoto, Osotogari and that opponent has to resist and try to throw the opponent. So you start in the hardest part of judo 
there is no way around it. So, you know, in Randori, yeah. yeah, I can play grip kumikata or grip fighting with you yeah. for five minutes and stall if I'm tired. So if it's physiological adaptation with technical, if I, just mm. like we do with healthy aging, if we can hit the, you know, get the bang for the buck and some, find a drill that's going to be hard or intense and have technical component to it, yeah, great. It all depends on what we need. Um, talking about heart rate, you know, we never use heart rate, right, in judo, which is great. I've been playing with the wrist, wrist straps, put it on my elbow and tape it. Now I train jiu-jitsu, so it's a little bit different. But I'm watching how much uh, my heart rate is getting up through an hour of practice. And I found out jiu-jitsu, you know, where I train is mainly technical and I get maybe 10 to 15 minutes of more intense training, which is almost about the, the thing that I want to get. I want to get about 20 minutes. The use of technology in sport, health, and wellness is growing at a rapid rate. The global wearable healthcare device market is projected to reach $46 billion by 2025, up from an estimated $18 billion today in 2020. So how does technology help you with your training? How does your smartwatch help you improve? Is it really just entertainment, calculating distance, counting steps? The truth is most people do not know how to utilize the data to make it beneficial and that's where the real potential lies. In this next segment, we'll talk about ways we can utilize technology to achieve success. We will hear how both the Israeli and the Japanese national judo teams used technology in the past to create databases on its competitors. We're in a data-driven world, but how can we use it to become better judoka with healthier futures? David's gonna share a fun story about a cross-country coach from Sweden who thinks he can do all the same things without the use of technology. We will talk about the work that David did at AIS with Kosei Inoue and the Japanese national team. The episode will then conclude with some very simple advice for aging judoka and judo club coaches that want the best for their program and its members. So far as technology goes, there seems to be an abundance of different measurement devices on the market, everything from heart rate monitors that Aton's talking about, or you know, smartwatches, or I guess even things like the Aura Ring, which seem to be like the high-end side of as far as retail devices go. With some of the options and all of the information out there, how do we utilize this data? I think the slick sales and marketing programs all over the world have sold average consumers and coaches to buy into this health tracking market, but most people are just doing it for fun, it looks like to me. You know, maybe maybe for a bit of motivation. I think the average judo coach is probably lacking the skills or the expertise to utilize this type of information on a day-to-day basis, at least in any meaningful way. Can you share with us some of the ways that you're using this data with your clients today? Yeah. So, um, you know, the the technology is is everywhere right now. There's all kinds of sensors. And a lot of the fun is in the the methodology and philosophy that underpins how you use that signal. And it's interesting in the in the stock market, it used to be really hard to work out the price of a stock. You had to have, you know, people doing calculations and you know, they had right. to like keep records and it was all done manual. Yeah. And so a financial analyst was really just a data acquisition machine. He was trying to give you a chart. Now, you know, just 
get on the internet and you got every stock price for everything around the world. Right. It's live. So what happens is the kind of individuals that become interesting are the people that know what to do with that signal. Um, and so when it comes to like, you know, we were talking about judo, you might monitor your heart rate. Or um, one thing we picked up from the Japanese when they came down to our combat center, that was one of the real fun things is you know, they'd been thinking about judo forever. We'd been thinking about judo for like a year. And yeah. so we were saying like, what do you look at? And of course, some of these are guarded secrets. They're a little bit quiet at first, but you know, you get them out and they don't mind having a beer or, right, or two. Right. <laughs> and you know, as you get more friendly, they start to tell you certain things. And I remember one, one was really fun. It was um, in competition. It was like a clock uh, dial. It was this diagram and judo is done. You you can take somebody down by basically going right on top of them. So you, you basically hook their heel and you just go straight down um, or you pull them back on top of you or they tend to be a twisting move right or twisting move left. And so they'd made this diagram and it was for every uh, international judo athlete for every fight they had had. And it showed the prevalencies of their their movements. And wow. it was like, it was a clock. It was like a, a profile. It was like a, a silhouette of their fighting style. And I just thought it was, it was, um, in a sense, uh, exercise science and, and it didn't have a lot of technology. It was basically done from a camera and somebody notating the camera stuff, but the beauty was in the, the interpretation and the infographic, how easy it was to see. And so I could take, if, uh, if you were going to fight Aton, I could just say, here's Aton's last 85 fights. Yeah, he tends to. These are his. It's not going to be like that, but he's a, he's like a two thirds dominant, clockwise twisting kind of guy. He never scores points this way. He's never scored points this way, right. and so it basically was a like a like a profiler. So some of those those nuances. It's not just the technology. It's it's how you use it. What we would do with our uh, clientele, say, take a sixty year old male, and um, he's really busy. He's working at Google or Apple or Tesla or whatever, and he's just he's busy. He's under the pump and things are moving. We got COVID. We got a, you know, recession. We got a lot of things going on. His company is basically driving the world economy. So it's a pretty big deal. Right. And so, um, with an, like an aura ring or a Wellu ring, or there's technologies you can use, you can go sleep at, you can take a look at how's the sleep going. And so we might ask the question, you know, are you, or are you not sleeping well? And they go, no, I'm sleeping terrible. And you're like, we can see that less than two to three, four hours of good sleep a night. That is horrific. How's your brain going to work for your job when you're not getting sleep? So let's move that up the priority list. We've got we got technology giving us hard data. It's not an opinion that you think you're sleeping bad. This is hard data that you're not sleeping well. And you're not sleeping well over multiple nights. So then you could go into, uh, let's take a look at your hydration status. Or you can do that through measuring their urine. Or let's take a little look at, uh, you could use a continuous blood glucose meter and say, like, what, what are you eating? What's your blood glucose like? And maybe it's just highs and lows, highs and lows. They want sugar fixes and they're just eating crappy food and having these massive rushes and then these huge craters. Um, and you could, with heart rate monitor, you could see how do they exercise. They might just do, all they do is high intensity exercise and they're already revved up and now they're revving themselves up more. So you can sit down with them and say, look, it's not an opinion. I could probably get this by talking to you, but you might lie or shade the truth or not want to be honest. But now the technology is like, like a, it's like um, a truth sayer, you know, it's like right. we, we now can really take a look at what the week is looking like. So then Aton could be like, why not, 
why don't we give you a cardiovascular load, but lower intensity for longer? It might calm you down. It might help your sleep. Why don't we position this in the evening? Why don't we think about knocking out the snacking? Let's think of a more regimented breakfast to start you off. You know, those are the kind of things. That's how the technology would give you insights on what to do. But then as you try to intervene, humans, it's tough to change behaviors. Then you can monitor stuff and go, it's not working. It's not working. We need to think of something else. We had great advice, but it's just not sticking. So, and and then maybe one little thing will stick and then that's like a spark. And then I was going to say that starts a fire, but that's not a good analogy right Right. now. So we'll just leave that. We'll just leave that one. Yeah. The the human aspect of all of this is, is the, is the end game. I mean, people yeah. have to take action, I think. And that's the that's the most interesting part of all this. A lot of these people that you're working with right now, these are like executives that are like extremely smart people have accomplished mm. like really great things in their lives. Yeah. And uh, of course, I'm probably preaching to the choir with your clients because they've signed up with you. So they're probably not the exact person I'm talking about. But so many people who are very intelligent and understand, they probably know a lot of the problems but they're just not willing to take action on their own body. You know, we can, we're trying to figure out how to get to Mars, but you know, they say we don't know what kind of food to take. Right. There's right. these basic human capacities yeah. that we don't really understand yet. And we're trying to figure out these very complex problems in our, in our world and outside of our world. And we don't even mm. do a good job of taking care of ourselves at this point, but yeah. well, the- you try the, I mean, one thing that I think, you know, Aton's particularly good at, he's got a, a really good, um, his personality and his empathy, and he's got a sense of honesty to him. And so um, people will start to trust him. I don't know, maybe they shouldn't trust him, but they do. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, Aton, uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> he's always uh, had that in the judo world, everyone here, he's yeah. worked with the best of everybody yeah. in judo and everyone always speaks highly of Aton. You have to, you have to trust a person. Like it's one thing to have somebody tell you, you should do this, you should do that, but you need to really trust them. You need to believe in them and you need to trust them. And that helps. And another thing is you need to start talking language that is compelling. Um, And for a judo athlete, you can say things like, you know, you have a tournament coming up in three weeks. You know, you're still eight pounds off weight, you know, when do you think you want to start getting on top of this? Cause I'm, I'm coaching and I'm starting to get a little nervous because this has happened before. Now I'm not, I'm not lecturing you. I'm just, it's a reality check. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Maybe I should start. Yeah. I, I need to get on top of this. Yeah. What we, what we, t- we've been talking about, you can see what you think of this idea of we're, we're using age, be very age conscious. So if we measure your aerobic capacity, instead of me telling you your oxygen uptake is 42 milliliters per kilogram per minute, that's your aerobic capacity. Right. You know, that categorizes, you as good. What we would do is say, um, we've just tested your aerobic capacity and you've got the average aerobic capacity of a 28 year old. You're 60. You got an aerobic capacity of a 28 year old. That's cool. Your joint, your right knee, it looks like it's about 90. That, that sucker's falling apart on you. We got to, that, that thing's almost done. So we got to take care of that. You know, your balance is like a 50 year old. Your cognitive health is like a, you know, 40 year old. And this idea that we're not all going to live forever and to make it, they get so busy every day is so busy to say like, you know, if you're 60, you could have another 20 really good years in your life. Let's think about that. The way it's going, your heart is aging quickly. Your body composition is terrible. Your balance is shocking. You know, it doesn't, it's all going downhill. With babies, we measure how they grow. There's growth charts. Everybody knows how babies age, 
They, right. You know, you got a six month old baby. You've got, you know, a son, he said, and you, you monitor them, don't you? You yeah. track them and you're like, oh, for your height you're at this age and you have this weight. That's, that's good. If they don't put on weight or grow, they say it's failure to thrive. There is a nutrition problem or there might right. be a disease. We should get on top of this. But we don't really talk much about these uh, declines in capacity with aging. We don't look at those curves. Interesting. And so what Aton and I have been doing is bringing those to the forefront. It's neither good nor bad. It's just what it is. Yeah. And with exercise, diet, and sleep, you can you can live and ride and do judo like a 40-year-old, and you're in your 60s. You've seen them. These yeah. older guys in the dojos, and they're like 60 years old, and you're like, damn, you know, yeah. they look good, don't they? And I they're think, still really healthy. Yeah, I think sport actually does that for a lot of people. For me, I've always been an athlete, so I, you know, not that I'm the best with my nutrition or anything, mm. but I, I've always had an effort or some kind of goal when it comes to, like, taking care of myself, but most of it was to try to perform at a higher level. So I think people that don't play sports, they kind of get a little sidetracked and they don't really realize the importance of chasing gains. You know, for us as athletes, you're chasing wins or you're chasing gains in the weight room or trying to, yeah. to improve. And I think that judo always did that for me. But, you know, back to what we were talking about technology, I think judo is just because there's not a lot of money. I think technology is always underutilized. I want to ask Aton because I think um, it was two years ago we brought Yard in here and she actually had a startup that was similar to what he's talking about. So, so yeah, so they developed an app before the 2016 Olympics. Basically, for all the people that qualified, they click on the app, they see all their comp competitors that qualified. They can, they will give them strategy. This person tend to get tired at the beginning, but then they throw le left throw and they will click and they will sh we will see an example with a video. Now, I tried to get a hold of that to help Marty for the 2016 Olympics, but they wouldn't give it to me. But uh, they basically were able to create something that David described, just make it visual as well. Uh, and I think, again, it's not a new concept. I know like from judo, the East Germans were the first one to send their spies to the competitions to take notes. So it's different version of the same thing people were doing in for years, but yeah. now with like the use of the, your iPhone or, or whatever, whatever it is. But I wanted to add to David's talk. David has a really nice stories on the counter of technology, how like really good coaching can actually do a lot of things without technology. David, do you remember you told me the story with the, with the cycling coach for that, for every test that you can do, he can do as well. Just not yeah. Any. Yeah. No, I've had, yeah. um, I've had a couple like challenging coaches. Actually, I had one, uh, it was, uh, one of the first times it happened was with a cross country, a ski coach, uh, Krista Skog, and he'd worked with some really top cross country skiers. The ones who in Calgary had won Tony Morgan and Thomas Wasberg, all these skiers that had won big medals. And he told me I was a young, you know, I just got my PhD and we were talking about the tests I was doing. He say, what tests do you want to do? What are these technological sports science tests are you going to do? Because whatever test you do, he says, I can figure out the same thing with no technology at all. And I go, well, you know, how would you do? I'm going to do a VO2 max test. I put them on a treadmill with poles that get steeper and faster. I've got a metabolic cart, costs like $80,000. I can measure expired air analysis, you know, and so I can figure out who's got high aerobic capacity and who's got low aerobic capacity. 
he goes, yeah, I tell these same people, I, this is my Swedish accent, he says, I take them <laughs> out to a hill and he says, um, you know, I have them do uh, repeat four minute efforts, slow, fast, faster, fast. I time them and the fastest ones have the highest aerobic capacity. And I go back to the same hill every year so I know if they're fitter than they were the year before. I was like, ah, damn, that's pretty good. And so it, it was a whole combination of me talking about balance and speed and agility and he would have a drill or a technique or his eye or his ranking, um, which was which was really interesting. The other thing that um, in that that genre that Aton and I've talked about a, a lot is we've had times at the Institute of Sport. There was a, a really interesting a story about how um, unfortunately there was a an accident in Germany where that one of the top female cyclists was killed. There was an automobile accident. A, a woman was driving around a a bend. She was texting and she hit the entire. Uh, national team. And so one was killed. Everyone went to hospital. And it was terrible. Um, so then the next wave, the junior development athletes all kind of became national athletes. And so everybody was really nervous because it was like, cycling's dangerous. We got to be careful. If it's wet out, we shouldn't ride. If it's windy out, we shouldn't ride. If there's traffic, we shouldn't ride. And it was just getting really conservative. And we started to say, well, let's just pick the athletes in the lab. We'll just do lab testing. We'll test everything in the lab, their power to weight, their blood lactate curves, we'll VO2 max. We'll do it all based on on like science. And these women were, they were super fit. They're super lean. They seemed amazing, um, but they, they weren't winning. And we were using terms like they are fit, but not fast. You know, um, we would say that they're, they're well-trained, but they're not competitive. And it was really um, an awkward place to be. And we, I had a conversation with the coach and we had some of these connections with some of the special forces boys up in Sydney, these uh, commandos. And so we went and looked at their selection courses and they had this real philosophy that the selection courses have to be hard and they have to be hard because you don't want someone to tell you you're good. You want to know that you're good. So if I tell you you're good and I put you on a national team, you will always doubt yourself. But if you prove to yourself that you deserve to be on that national team, it has everything is different. And so you don't want it to be easy. You don't want it to be quick. You want it to be hard. You want it to be a struggle. You want it to be laborious. So we started to create these like special forces selection camps, but not with barbed wire and camo <laughs> and all that stuff. We were creating selection courses where they would come in, they'd get a number, we'd do deselections, everything was relevant. Um, we used the acronym PIERCE, Performance in Relevant Challenging Environments, and we just loaded it up. We would have drivers only speak Italian, just like when they go to Europe. We'd have them eat crappy food. We'd have uh, the van breakdown and they'd have to change the tire. We would have wow. time trials. We would have missing helmets, missing shoes. We had we made it as hard as we could. And we'd start with like 20, 30 women and it just boiled down. And at the end, you might have three or four. And of those, you'd pick two or three. But those women... It was unbelievable. They were fierce. Like they, they said racing in Europe was, they said the selection course was harder than racing in Europe. And it, and, and that in a sense, there was sports science all around that. And there was very sophisticated thinking around that. And they still did testing, but it was under the context of competition. And I thought that that was a real wake up call for me. I think sports science at the highest level is always going to be super important. And I know when you talk about your coach that thinks he can do it all without the scientists, I mean, that's judo, to be honest with you. A lot of judo is is tradition. A lot of people say, no, you know, my sensei taught me this. I'm going to teach you this. And this is just how you get good at judo. There's a lot of that in the judo world. So I think at a high level, 
or, or a low level, it's much easier for a coach mm-hmm. with very little expertise to actually see the gains and see the improvements in people. But the sports science that comes in at the very highest level when you're when you're trying to measure milliseconds or or you're trying to gain inches, you know, that's where the sports science, I think that I, I don't think many would argue, but that's when it plays a, a vital role. Like how do you how do you measure a tenth of a second or how do you get a tenth of a second off of somebody's, mm. you know, 40, 40 meter sprint or something? So that's where the sports science comes. And the interesting thing is to see that what you guys figure out and how it trickles down to you know, a more mainstream society and things that kids start doing on high school programs and all these things that kind of, yeah. at some point, I think they start in a lab somewhere. Yeah, they do. And it, it, it works. The two work together really well. There is a coaching science. There's a science to coaching. And um, when I was in the MBA, um, had a couple of journalists, they were interviewing me about, um, they said, you've brought over this new concept. It's sweeping through the MBA, load management. Tell us about load management, you know, when they should play, when they shouldn't. This scientific formulation you've brought from Australia, you monitor them and you can decide when he should play and when he doesn't. And I was going to, it's funny that we call it load management because really what I'm talking about is just being logical. I'm talking about training programs that are thoughtful, things that make sense. You're the ones calling it load management. I'm just calling it thoughtful training, logical training, reasonable training, preparation. If you are going to play five games in a week and you've only been practicing once a week at game intensity, that seems a bit much, you know? And if you are somebody that can train four days a week without any injury or fatigue and people are having you on the bench and you're not getting a chance to play, they're worried that you're going to play more than two and you encourage it. Again, that's, that's just kind of being reasonable. Um, so I think there is, there's like a, a coaching science and sports science blend. That's always when it's best. Sometimes what the coaches will want is they'll also want support for belief. I would have uh, this this Heiko Salzvedel, he'll probably hear this someday. Um, he would roll me out and he'd say, you know, Dr. Martin is now going to tell you about the altitude camp. I was being like, coach, I don't need to tell him about the altitude camp. It's three weeks. We're training 700, 800 K a week. Like, it's like, what do you want me to tell them? He's like, no, no, tell them, tell them about the hemoglobin mass and erythropoietin and tell them about how it's structured and tell them about how we're going to try to take care of their joints and the climbing is going to be layered. Like tell them. And so he was using me to help instill confidence and belief that we are doing something special. And when you come out of this, you're going to be going really, really good. So, so sometimes the sports science, when done well, it complements the coaching when it's done poorly is when you have a scientist could be like me who doesn't really know judo. And I've got a team. I had like five PhD students working in the combat center and we get a bunch of judo coaches and we start telling them how they should do their business. Right. And they'd be looking at us going, I don't see a belt on you at all. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know why you're wasting my time, you know? Yeah. And if uh, Kosei anyway walked in, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if he was talking millimoles or millimeters, whatever he said, they were all ears, you know? And, and his insights from, from coaching as much as from the science would, would totally trump anything that we'd have to say. So it's always best when it works together. Right. I wanted to add, can you elaborate a little bit on your interaction with Kosei Inoue? Mm. How, how did it come about? Yeah, so yeah. we were, um, so the uh, Olympic Games already been uh, named for Tokyo. And so we knew that Australia was going to have to go to, to Tokyo to compete. And so the Australian combat um, athletes, the judo players, wrestlers, taekwondo um, and boxing, they weren't, they weren't great. Um, 
So our pitch to the Australian government was for a half a million dollars to start this combat center. There's, there's 53 gold medals in the combat sports. Unless you add in uh, fencing, then you get 63 gold medals. So it's a big chunk of medals. And if you look at who's winning the medals, almost everybody wins the medals. Everybody but Australia. Almost countries you can't even name win medals. In- That's what they said about judo. I don't know if the stats are really true, but judo has one of the biggest, uh, the widest range of m- the medal pool for a, different countries. A, you know? Amazing. And there's 14 gold medals in judo um, across men and women. And there's all kind because things happen. There's a randomness too. Someone gets hurt. Like, right. like you were saying, I think early before we started, what was it? Seven fights to get you through to well, at a, a world championship. A world- there's 90 plus people in some of the categories in the, in recent years. So Man, yeah, you got to be a warrior. Like you're just getting beat up every fight and there's not a lot of easy fights. So, right. so because of, um, you might be in a certain weight class, you know, in the U S and there might be five guys in that weight class and they're all capable of metal, but only one will go. So you've just eliminated, you've marginalized all that competition. So it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, sport in that a lot of people can get medals. There's lots of chances. So we made our play. We got the, the combat center and then to try to make it uh, work when you, when you are a sport that doesn't have a lot of funding, there's different avenues you can go to get funding. And one is IOC solidarity grants. And so we got, we got some IOC solidarity grants and the Olympics were in Tokyo. So I had to interface with, um, I think Jose, he'd left Japan. He was coaching for the UK for a bit. He'd just come back. And so he was back in with their national program. And so I didn't even know who Kose in a way was. And so um, I was having these discussions at a fairly high level about how the Japanese judo team would come down. They would learn about sports science from us. And we were getting a reputation of being real badass hardcores because we had partnered with two commando regiment, their integrated hand-to-hand combat center. And we had commandos coming in to help impress a level of seriousness. I had guys, I'm sure they had post-traumatic stress, you know, five tours of <laughs> Afghanistan. And they just had a look about it when they were like, boys, you know, let's, let's get together over here. I got a couple of things to say. All of a sudden, these unruly Aussie judo players that didn't listen to anyone, they, they just all line up right. and they're like little puppy dogs. So it was like, that, that was good. So the word kind of got out. We were running those selection courses. Like I was telling you for the women's camp, we tried them in the combat um, and judo is great for selection course style, you know, camps, because they're hard out in the, in the Australian bush, two in the morning, push-ups, carrying rocks. It's really fun stuff. Wow. And so the solidarity grant was Japan will come down and they will teach Australia technique because Australian judo players are not known for their technique. And then the Australians will, with two commando, will teach Japan they may have forgotten their warrior ways. They're too technical and they're getting a little too pretty and a little too fancy. And so Kosei was like, I need people that are ready to fight. Like I need, I need warriors again. I need a Japanese warriors. And we're starting to get, you know, pretty boys that are getting sponsored with beautiful technique. Wow. And so that was the merger. So I basically remember telling the judo coaches that we have a camp. It's all confirmed. It's fully funded. You bring your guys. They bring their guys. We're going to have men and women, and we're going to have a two-week camp. And uh, there's a couple coaches. I'll get their names. I, I didn't even read their names. I just gave the list out. And I remember one of the coaches saying, "Is Kosei Anyway is coming. I said, I, 
Yeah, I think that's the guy I was talking to. Kosei. Right. <laughs> yeah, he said he's been to Australia before. They're like, dude, I think he, he went like gold medalist. Are, he, <laughs> right. are you shit? Is he coming? And I was like, yeah. yeah, no, he's coming. Is he good? They're like, oh. And man, when he came in the dojo, even the Aussies, everybody was just like, you know, all lined up, bowing. Everybody was just like, just like you could hear a pin drop. It was really cool to see how much respect. And so then he showed him, you know, throws and ground game and he was wonderful. And then we would take them out on the bush into the Australian bush. And we would do all these drills and training exercises with the military guys. And he, he just loved it. And he was so gracious and he knew that we needed to work together. So when the press came, he said wonderful things about us and the politicians heard it. And, you know, yeah. it's like, and I said wonderful things about Japan. And then he invited me up to give lectures to all the, the Japanese kind of hierarchy um, at the Japanese Institute of Sport up there to tell them about, you know, how important a, a combat mindset is and how much we were gaining from them. And they, they knew Australia wasn't going to be a big threat. So that was the idea. Yeah, that's how that's we got a, to That's me. a really cool story. You know, Kose is definitely known as like a, a good guy in the judo world. I actually had a great interview just last week with uh, Nicholas Gill, who is the person mm. from Canada that he beat in the finals of the Olympic Games. And, you know, both of them are coaching their national yeah. teams now. So super cool story. It, yeah, no, he was, he was just, he was wonderful. And he, you know, he was asking me about my judo game and I was like, not, don't really have one. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the, the boys were really disappointed. I had one of our national team guys who came in and he said, you got to quit bringing the Japanese women down. And I was like, what, what, what's wrong? You know, what are they taking up too much mat space or what do you, I mean, what do you, I don't get it. Yeah. And they were doing, uh, the Nawaza, the ground game, and the women would not just fight with the women. They were just mixing it up. And then women would fight with the men. And the women were killing the guys. Right. And the guys were so embarrassed. Like, oh, my God, she's so good. You yeah. know, her technique is fierce. And they're just saying it's just full and embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. So as a, a sports scientist, I want to know what uh, what gets you excited. I mean, you've been mm. uh, you've been working with, you know, different athletes of all types, whether it's endurance sports, combat sports. Now you're working with people that want to be healthier and live longer. Um, I've always been intrigued with like human performance and, and I, I, you know, just looking around at like what the human is capable of is, is interesting to me from a entertainment yeah. standpoint, to be honest, but from you, you know, the, the athletes are the ones getting all the accolades, the ones that are, you know, on the Wheaties box that are accomplishing these big things. But there's always somebody like you, in my opinion, that's behind the scenes helping a lot of this stuff, you know, happen. I mean, like. So 1954, I looked up, was the uh, first time a human being broke the one mile, right? Uh, the four minute, the four minute mile, which is a Roger Bannister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it wasn't something that was new. I, I, the research I did it shows that they were chasing this for 50 or 60 years. It wasn't a, a new thing they were trying to do. So for 50 or 60 years, I, they in even in the science world, I think a lot of people thought this is not humanly possible. Mm. And you know, when do athletes stop? Is there a limit to you know? This is a common question in your world because i think this yeah. is what you do but how strong can we get how fast can we get mm. and and then you you turn in the psychological part of this like so he breaks the four minute mile and i think three months later somebody else did it so for 50 years nobody can do it and then three months later another person and and now i think they said there's roughly 1500 people around the world that can you know break a four minute mile so it's you know yeah. what are your thoughts is that mm. does it get you excited to try to see what you can how you can play a role and what you can be part of to kind of take athleticism to the next level? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in the um, untapped potential. And so um, in myself, but in, in other things as well, like, you know, for, for you, there might be a concept that you're struggling with, 
you know, intellectually, there's, there's, a, there's some kind of, whether it's math or chemistry, or there's some concept in business, and you're, you're not quite getting it. But if it was presented to you in the right way, you just go, oh, my God, I got it. You right. know? Or if you went out for a run, and then you divided the little topic up into a couple of pieces, you just get it. And it's like, you could go from a point of your friends going, dude, you just don't get this. You're not good. You're not good at economics. You're not good at math. You're not good at, you know, because you had one chance in one environment. And so you get labeled and then you believe that. Um, but in fact, you have all this potential. And if it just a, just a lucky stroke, you had a different professor that taught you a different way, or you hit it from a different perspective, or you hit it at a different time in your life. And people would be going the other way. They're like, Oh my God, Chuck, you're so good at this. You're so good at this. When I was a ski racer, I had two big wins on icy courses. Everybody told me, they said, Dave, you're so good on ice. You're so good on ice. You're amazing. And whenever there was an icy course, everybody's like, hey, Dave's probably going to win this. He's so good on ice. When it gets icy, Dave, he's fearless. He's, and I started to like, you know, do this whole thing. And I remember asking him, you know, other teammates about like, do, you know, I, when we go train on ice, it seems like we're all the same. And I don't know. I'm starting to think I'm good on ice because I think I'm good on ice. I really think that's it. Yeah. So I, I've always been fascinated with untapped potential. And sometimes what the sciences do is I think they hold people up. Um, there's um, there's a psychologist, Carol Dweck. She's very famous. Um, and, um, you know, uh, Professor Emeritus um, worked at Stanford. And she's um, done a lot of really interesting work on childhood learning, but the sports scenes kind of tapped into her. And I was able to do a, a couple workshops with her. And, you know, it, the ideas of um, that the human body is, is so much more capable of anything it will ever do for you. And even the elite athletes will never fully tap into their capabilities. And I think that's an interesting way to live. And when you can't do something, she has this great TED talk about it. And I heard a lecture on it. She says, um, instead of saying, you can't do this, she says, um, you, you can't do this now, or you're not ready um, for the next challenge yet, like the power of yet. And these themes that um, you're going to fail, you are, yeah. and and you're going to find things you can't do. And there's going to be things that you have to work harder at to do than others. But with persistence and the right timing and the right mentorship and the right belief, there's all these things you can do. And you could probably do it as you battle cancer. You could probably do it as you try to learn something mentally. You could probably do it with your business. You could probably do it. I find that part really, really interesting. And so for me, the technology and the um, the methodology and the sciences is a really nice way to hold people up because they'll go, he'll never be able to do this. And you're like, oh, really? We, we've got data that shows he runs just as fast as anyone else on the court. Yeah, but he's never going to be like a first round draft pick. He shoots just as good as two first round draft picks. You know, it's kind of like the true sayer. Like he'll never break a four minute mile. He's yeah. doing workouts right now where he's covering five miles at four minute mile pace and he's got less than 30 seconds breast between the intervals. That seems pretty close to me, you know, it, yeah. it, and I think the sciences let you know, you can go to Mars, you can go to the moon. The sciences know you can build a golden gate bridge. They kind of allow you the, with the, the evidence kind of leads you into believing something that without the sciences, sometimes you, you just don't, you just don't think it's even possible. And I've always, I was always found that really interesting with people like right now, we might have a ton of nice, some clients, they can only exercise for 90 minutes and people go, we can't exercise 90 minutes in a week and that be healthy. You're going to have early mortality risk of heart disease. You can't. Right. And it's like, really? Maybe, maybe we just haven't worked out how to use that 90 minutes right to give them all the same benefits that you'd get through 
three hours of exercise. I, I find that area really Yeah, the human aspect of getting things done, it kind of comes back to that. But the, the other, the psychological aspect mm. of, of a good coach, you know, like I remember a coach telling me I was good at judo. I, I don't know that I really was, <laughs> yeah. right? But if, if somebody yeah. tells you that you've done well with something, it motivates, especially when you're working with kids. Yeah. You know, for me, like I have kids in my dojo and I really want to encourage them to become better. You know, as long as they can make small improvements, like every kid is at different physiological milestones in their life. And all 12 year olds are not the same. So if you can kind of encourage them to try to become better and constantly, you know, maybe even compete against themselves to just try to make, you know, small incremental gains to keep them encouraged. And that's important. I think the best coaches are able to do that, you know, across all different disciplines and different sports, because if you discourage somebody too early, they will never live up to their, their you know, highest abilities, you know, and that's with a sport like judo, because so many people quit early. Most judo players don't hit their peaks till their mid twenties. When most Mm. people in the United States are kind of giving up on their elite careers at 20 years old. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they, they, uh, this, um, these concepts, you know, again, Carol Dweck written this wonderful book mindset, uh, which is a really fun read. Um, but some of the themes have moved into, you know, other researchers as well. And this idea of, of the, the praise that you give and the environments you give that are around work and praise and effort, um, versus outcome and, you know, kind of how you're born. It's not like, oh my God, you know, you are amazing. You're just like your dad. Oh my God, you fight like so-and-so. Um, these are like, I'm, I was born and my genetics just bestow upon me this magical gift and competitiveness. I am a great judo player. The other way to go is that I love, I love the way you work those throws that you're not as good at. I love the way you played that fight, even though you were down. I, I love, um, you know, all these things about effort and tenacity and persistence and your attitude. And, you know, when people know that, that the people that they value around them, respect them for their effort, it's a wonderful environment to be in because you can never lose. You can always give effort. You can always give effort. But if you're only seen as worthy of praise and worthy of acceptance for outcome, it's going to get pretty dark pretty quick because everyone loses sometime (laughs) and most people lose a lot of the time. So I'll give you a, a nice story from the world of judo. You might know it, you might not, uh, but Daniela Krokover, uh, she was number two in Israel, always lost to a, a, another judoka from my club. And I come one summer to Israel, I see her in the weight room, and I said, well, how is it going? She said, no one sent me into international competition. I always lose to that girl. And I asked her, aren't you Argentinian citizen also? She said, yes. Why don't you go and compete for Argentina? Through the Panams, maybe you'll have a better luck competing for a South American country. Why you go like straight through the wall? Just go. So she came to our ho- to my house. We sent email to the Argentinian Federation. Then I went back to school here. The next thing I know, she moved to Argentina. Next thing you know, she medals in eight tournaments in the European Tour. Next thing you know, she's a world champion. Just like changing environment, starting from a fresh start, different coaches might be not even be better technically, but just having a belief system around you can make the difference. So sometimes uh, things like David mm. was saying, like the, uh, not just your growth mindset, but your coach's growth mindset as well can help a lot. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I've been following uh, Angela Duckworth. Mm. She kind of yeah. popularized the uh, the grit, and, yeah. and she's all about the psychology of effort, motivation, achievement, 
And I think what she's really trying to do is kind of the same thing you're doing is like demystify success. Mm. So is there a big intersection, I guess, or maybe a crossover, especially when you were at the Institute of the biological sciences, working with the psychological sciences and, and trying to really tap into the full picture of the athletes? Yeah, no, the psychology um, area is, is, was really, really big and, and highly recognized. And um, it's a hard thing to coordinate support teams around athletes. Usually some support person is always a little bit more favored than another support person. So say you're doing strength conditioning, Aton's doing medicine, I might be doing psychology, and then we have an athlete. So if I'm the psychologist and I'm really connecting with them about mental stuff and you're saying, yeah, but they're still weak. They need to lift, you know, and, and Aiden saying, you know, we got to get that knee right. Like, come on, I, I get believing in yourself, but let's, let's just, let's, you know, let's be a little bit more grounded here. You, you got to, um, the, the challenge is to keep the support staff, um, on even keel and balance and layered well so that the psychology can really come to the forefront. And the other thing that sometimes psychology, it will get very personal and very private. And so you two will ask me, Hey, how's, you know, how's Kate going? And I'll say, I can't talk to you about it. It's all confidential. And then you two are going like, Oh, so hey, Kate can talk to you, but don't talk to me about how strong you are. Don't talk to me about it. And go, no, no, it's very personal. And so then you two could start to resent the psychologist. Um, and it gets, it, there's all kinds of funny games that get played sure. when it's going well. It's, um, I find, that the psychologists that I know that have done a really, really good uh, job, there's a guy named Clark Perry who worked with the Australian swimmers for a number of years. He's now, you know, working in a, a business out in New York where he consults with executives. Um, he would, he would do a lot of work with the coaches. So it was like, um, help let the psychologist work through the coach to connect with the athlete. And so then when you're about to go up on the mat and fight, you've got one person there, that's your coach. Yeah. So let that relationship be solid and bomb proof. And so use the psychologist to help the support staff. How do you go, how do we all work together? It's not about us. We're support staff. It's supposed to be about the athlete and let's, let's channel as much as we can through the coach so that, um, you gotta be really, if you're going to be a sports psychologist or you're going to, you know, work around elite sport, you got to learn how to disappear into the shadows and be very, very comfortable with that and take pride in pursuing excellence and understanding, not the win or the glory. And it's hard because a lot yeah. of support staff, the psychologists, once somebody wins a gold medal, they're like, I took care of their mind. The mind is the most important thing. Everybody here is fit. It's all in the mind. I'm the one. Read my book, you know? Yeah. And that just doesn't go down well at all. So it's a, it's a careful balance. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, as a support staff, again, we, mm. I see ourselves as a shadow people. We should yeah. never like go in front of the camera. We're like, you're saying behind the scene, people that trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. We're supporting the athletes for success. Right. Yeah. But uh, it's hard really to measure what area is the, the but most. you, you talked earlier about yeah. the coaching and the importance of like trusting your coach and having this person. Yeah. And that, like for me, like as like, I'm a coach. I, I want to try to connect with all of my students and try to mm. make sure that they do trust me for one, that I'm going to be Matt side. And hopefully I'm with these kids through their childhood. And I, I, there has to be some level of trust, but like, I don't really think of it as psychology, although it's exactly what it is, but it's like, uh -huh. it's the language of coaching, you know, how, yeah. you know, what is it that you say? And, and it's, I, I don't think there's any one way, but the best, you know, athletes are the ones that have this connection with their coach. You know, for me, you know, with an unsupported, you know, American judo program, I was traveling oftentimes with no coach. Yeah. And I had this sense of jealousy when I would see, you know, we brought Yarden in. She said, I had the same coach from when I was 
you know, a little girl that went with me all the way through my Olympic medal. And there's that, and this is where that he is obviously perfected when he talks to her, what he says to her prior to the event, when to leave her alone. Mm. And those are skills that like, I think we're all trying, but I, I just don't know that we have the resources or most coaches probably don't know where to find the resources to kind of improve in, in that area. Well, I think, um, you know, again, some of these, these books, you'll get a couple of really good, um, tips. I think no time, um, wasted listening to, uh, Carol Dweck, Ted talk or reading one of her books. Um, Angela Duckworth, uh, I was out in Philly, so interacted, you know, with Angela and, um, she's worked in with a couple of the NBA teams as well, does some really, really nice work. Um, she's kind of like the, the younger, um, Duckworth, a lot of similar principles and themes, um, that she's, you know, being, bringing to the front. But there's two ways to use like a sports psychologist. One is to make you better and the other is to make an athlete um, better. There is an area that doesn't get talked about a lot and it's super important. And that is the ability to um, refer. There's performance psychology and then there's clinical psychology. And there are athletes with eating disorders and there are athletes who have been, you know, in situations that are inappropriate from, you know, sexual abuse. And there are um, athletes that have anger management problems and there's athletes who are depressed. And these are, these are real issues and they need real help. And um, sometimes in sport, as long as you're fighting well, then, you know, he seems a little depressed, but he's, he's winning. So, you know, right. or yeah, he seems like he's super, super skinny all the time now, but you know, he's winning as, as long as they're winning, people say it's okay. And so on those, I think it really is good for coaches to have a network where they can be the conduit to help say, or bring a psychologist in to say, look at this through your eyes with me and help me. Cause you know, it's really got to be health first and performance second. Um, and then the other thing is sometimes, you know, young psychologists, they'll want to come in and they'll say, Oh, I'll, I'll work with you. And they either want to get some data for a research project, or they want to tell their friends that they helped a judo club, um, or they're writing a book and they need a chapter or, you know, and so they're not in it for long. Um, they're right. very, they're, they're just going to blow in and blow out. And for those, I wouldn't let them get too close to the athletes. You can do a lecture as long as they're going to reinforce what you believe in, but you're really trying to bring psychology support in, you know, to help, um, you. And I right. think, I think if you're authentic and you really want the best for the kids and you really, you know, value process and learning and growth and challenges, you really can't go too, too wrong. The thing that get people uh, mixed up usually in coaching um, is when their jobs are on the line and some, an athlete is losing and they're losing as well. The NBA right. right now, teams are exiting. I just saw the coach of the Rockets is gone. The coach of the Sixers is gone. You know, when your team loses, you lose. And, right. uh, that puts coaches in a really tough situation because the conversations they're having with their athletes is, you know, damn it, you know, yeah. you're going to win this freaking fight <laughs> or we're all going to, it gets really intense. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it can't be that way. Good coaching is about calming yourself, breathing, refocusing, think of your strategy, where are you strong? Don't give up hope, you know, go back to what you're good at. You know, it's all, all of those themes, they have to stay to the front. And if it becomes about the coach and your insecurities, your anger, your emotion, your frustrations, you know, who knows what the balance sheet's like at your dojo, that can't be part of it. That can't go to the athlete conversation. When right. it starts to get intense with the athlete, it has to be about them. It has to come from a good place. 
You have to love the athlete. You have to care for the athlete. You have to want good things for the athlete, genuinely want good things for them. And most of the cases I've seen gone bad is when that, that fundamental part of the relationship breaks down. There's something else happening. Yeah. It's an ego trip or there's something else on the line or there's something else that's getting in there. This is this is a lot of fun for me. I can probably I could I could keep you here for hours, but I'm gonna fire away just a couple of other yeah. uh, small questions. Yeah. But um, you've had a vast amount of experience from elite athletes, professional sports, um, and now you're working with, like we said earlier, regular Joes. Um, most of our listeners are what I would call aging judoka probably a lot of them you know it may, we may have some of the youngsters out there listening some of the elite athletes but a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are people that are running judo clubs people that are trying to help others become better judo players um some of the things that you guys you and Aton are studying now with longevity and trying to take care of your body is mm-hmm. they're like i know it's not simple in fact it's the opposite of that it's very complex with trying to take care of yourself but if there is any piece of advice that you can offer you know, uh, an aging judoka, somebody that's part mm-hmm. of a dojo working with people and just really wants to make sure that they can do it as long as they can. Any kind of advice or steps that they should be taking, just, you know, something something simple that they can do that's going to really make an impact on their lives. Yeah, I know the one that we've stumbled on, Aton and I, we started, you know, looking into different ways to keep your heart healthy, you know, and if you can just do 30 minutes a day at a moderate intensity of, of cardiovascular exercise, like you, the, the, the odds are you'll decrease early mortality profoundly. And so then it's like, well, what, what should you do as a judo coach? What, what should you do? Skip rope or run or what, what should you do? And we've stumbled across a little bit uphill walking and it's just unbelievable uphill walking at a heart rate. That's at like, you know, 70, 80% max heart rate for like 20, 30 minutes uphill walking. It's good for your balance, your ankle mobility, your hip and your knee. Um, it's great for cardio. It's great for balance. It's, um, it's not dangerous at all. You don't leave beat up and inflamed and it's just a, you know, if you can do it outside, do a nature bath, you know, there's so much on the, the kind of the, the mindset that happens when people do exercise in nature, the blue sky, the vivid colors of the leaves, the sounds, the stillness, um, usually if we don't have smoke and all everything. So I would say for me, I've started doing it more. I really find it good and not an uphill walk. I might took my wife too, and we can do it together. And if you're out walking with a partner and they're at a different fitness than you put on a weight vest and Aton's done that. Right. And it's just a really simple fundamental theme. Um, yeah. But I mean, also with judo, for the, the thing that really happens in judo is a lot of people are nursing some kind of a joint injury. And maybe you can talk about that, Aton, yeah. keeping your joints together. Yeah. So, so for that, whether you like to do resi- some form of mm. resistance training at least twice a week, whether it's push-ups, squats, pull-ups. And again, there is a lot of research that high-forced repetitions to, to work against heavier resistance just short amount of reps doesn't have to be a lot at least twice a week for about five six repetition of each kind of exercise that you choose to do gonna actually increase your inter intracellular metrics which helps your joint to be a little bit more stable so look at it i don't need to get stronger for the sake of getting strong uh, for lifting more weights but i do it to support my joints so i can do my uchimadas and my arm bars and to stay healthy for that more than anything. 
What was yeah. the what was the Kosei big throw? Uchimata. Ah, I knew, I, I, knew I remembered that word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the I mean the other thing too, just one from my perspective, which is so easy to to overlook, is um, a lot of really driven individuals are like, you get up early and you get going on the day, and it's that Navy SEAL, you know, take my, a cold shower, get it going, you know, wake up four thirty five, get her done, you know, you're because you're a badass, you're hardcore, you you get shit done, and. Um, sleep is unbelievable. Like sleep is unbelievable. What it does for cognitive health, the, the risk for dementia plummets. You, you almost have no, the risk is so low if you're getting more than seven, seven and a half hours of sleep. And the risk is so high when you're getting right. less than five hours of sleep. And so a lot of people are, you know, they talk about the fog of war. They're just in the fog of sleep deprivation. Yeah. And um, when you are sleep deprived, everything's tough. It's hard to emotionally be stable. It's hard to make good food choices. It's hard to be motivated to do the right things. It just, it's hard to learn things. It's hard to be patient. Um, and man, with the with the aura ring and some of the sleep monitoring we're doing, it's just like, I'm amazed at how sleep deprived a lot of these people are. And so it's like, if you can get to bed before 11, and you can let yourself sleep, you know, at least until five Thursday. If you want to get up early five, that's great. But just, just get your life together so you can go to bed earlier. And if you can't go to bed earlier, you can think about, you know, even the, even Green Beret and SEALs, they're doing these combat kips, you know. It's a little 10, 15-minute schnoozer just to rejuvenate the brain a tiny bit. And uh, that can that can really change people's perspective, which is kind of like a catalyst for other good things to happen. And now I will add one more thing, uh, especially what David was talking uh, earlier about loads, okay? So for judokas, mm. your weekend warriors, some people go uh, once a month and they expect their body to feel better. You want to have consistency. So if you go and practice judo, make it a habit to come twice a week regularly. Those who come once a month don't expect the body to feel good after that because you're not used to that type of activity. So I'm right. a, I know mm. especially I'm, I'm a great example. I'll go to San Jose State and do like Friday night. I cannot walk for a week after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you got to really be, it's the same yeah. with running. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. someone told me here, I went for a run. My knees felt horrible. I'm never running again. I said, well, try to build it up so you can make it consistently and then see how your body feels. So again, that consistency of loading will help your body eventually, but if you do it randomly and sporadically, you're likely either one going to be sore or two, you can get hurt. Yeah, it's yeah. like uh, we use the analogy sometimes when you're young, it's like driving a sports car. You just turn the wheel and it just zip, 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 right, left, right, left, try this, try that. You, you'll come out of it. Right. And when you get older, it's like driving a big old Cadillac. You just it's just, uh, just gently, you just kind of cruise or left and cruise or right and anticipate everything. Um, so if you've got some running or hiking coming up, get a little bit in before you go. And of course, you know, the other area we, we spend tons of time on is, is diet. Um, it's amazing, clean eating, healthy eating. Um, you know, alcohol is brutal. And, um, you know, there's just, you know, fat, salt, sugar, all the fun stuff. It's just brutal. And, um, you know, the heart is just subjected to all those fatty acids. You know, if you're eating poorly, it just builds up plaque and it's just not good for your heart. And um, you can look a million bucks with your muscles and you can even be relatively lean, but if the composition of the foods is, you know, got those saturated fats in it, it's just not, it's just not heart healthy at all. So these Mediterranean diets and these, you know, fish and oils and nuts and berries and, you know, that stuff is, you can just tell when people eat that stuff. You can almost tell when you meet them, you're like, wow, right. sparkly eyes. I bet you have some good food, you know, you can wow. tell. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that, I mean, that's, that's a lot of amazing advice that I definitely 
could follow myself as well. Mm. This last question, I'm going to fire away. The answer to this question is probably um, uh, multiple books to put a complete answer together. I think, like I said earlier, most of the listeners of this podcast are people like myself. They're running judo clubs. A lot of them are teaching judo. A lot of them are teaching judo as a side gig. And there's not a lot of people doing it for a living. And they're, they're lacking resources and knowledge. And I wanted to see if there was something, some piece of advice that you would give to a coach that's running a program with teenagers. We all do a really good job with you know, the, the seven to 12 year olds, and then we start to lose them. I think there's, you know, it happens in all sports that, you know, they become high school students. They start to drop out. Mm -hmm. If there's any area of improvement or something that coaches could invest in, whether it's investing in their own knowledge or, or bringing on a consultant to help them with physical training outside of, uh, of judo, what is it that a judo club can do something that's not overly complicated or overly expensive to really provide a service where you start to change that athlete that's a, grew up in your club as a kid that needs to start thinking more along the sports science and the athletic side of judo to become a, an elite athlete. Hmm. What what can somebody implement in their local club that's yeah that could that could make a positive impact? It's a it's a really good question, and my short answer would be. Um, I have two boys and um, they played around a little bit with boxing and wrestling um, and I saw them go through high school and I feel like there's a real opportunity and some may have already taken it, um, but it helps with the, the transition into more, you know, a professional approach to judo could be the way that the that judo and other combat sports can be used to support um, kind of mainstream high school sports. And I think that right now people give up and they forget there's a really nice hybrid that judo can be great for football. You know, judo can be great for basketball. Judo can be great for track and field. Judo can be great. That it's the complementary training that helps build resiliency and robustness to complement the other sports that you're going to. And I think that um, what I saw with my boys was this, I, I need to make a decision, you know. I'm either going to train in the boxing club or I'm going to go play rugby. It's one or the other. And it's like, no, no, no. The boxing training is great for rugby or the wrestling training is great for rugby. You know, like let it, let it complement. And then what that means is you're bringing, you're trying to bring coaches from other sports into the dojo. And that, that allows for a mixing of, of ideas. And it allows the kids to see that it's more than just my judo teacher interested in me. The judo teacher and the football teacher are interested in me. And young men love uh, older accomplished men to, to praise them and watch them and see them. There's, there's that parroting and pattering. And so I think if you want to have... Um, young teenagers stay in your club and be serious about their training. One thing to do is bring, bring soldiers in, you know, accomplished special forces soldiers, um, bring, uh, the high school coach in, you know, of the football team or a prestigious coach or a university coach or an Olympian or a, and what happens is the young men's, they, they parrot, they, they emulate that professionalism. And so instead of trying to do it all on your own, like learn it from a book or learn it from a class, um, just partner with it. Just bring it in right beside you. And then you'll learn. One of the things we got out of the combat center that I loved was I had no idea how much fun it would be to have a wrestling camp right beside a judo camp. And then at the end, you couldn't get them out. You could not get them out because wrestlers are all like, you need to lock this and grab. Right. And they're like, no, no, on the gi, you can't do that, but you can do that. Oh, I love what you're doing. And they're just, they couldn't quit. And I just thought, this is exciting. So my, my theme would be, 
try to bring excellence into the dojo, yeah, into the into the club. With Chuck, I think you're already doing it in a lot of ways. So you bring bring mm. a lot of world class judokas. I think now we, you can probably add some more things outside of judo as well, and which I think is going to be really mm. beneficial. And by that, also increase like your like uh, your networking and referrals uh, yeah. within your yeah. community. And I think like what you're doing as far as also building a community around the dojo, yeah, that's probably great. one of the greatest things because uh, you have parents' involvement and support from the community that will help. You know, the kids don't just come to become an elite athlete, but they also are having fun, in, you know, socializing uh, with their friends. So I think that combination uh, will be really successful. Guys, Thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. Uh, Eitan, thank you so much for the introduction. David, I, I really appreciate you coming down and spending your afternoon with us. This has been like super fun for me. I can have these conversations. I have like a list of things that I wanted to pick your brain on, but I realized that that could be a five-hour episode. And, uh, <laughs> I love it. So we definitely, I would love to do it again. Again, thank you so much. Eitan, thank you. We're going to bring you back again as well. And I would love to get you back down here sometime and and keep picking your brain. So I think we all have a lot we can learn from. Oh, no, I love what you're doing. So thanks for the invitation. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit judocast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.